0: Hello, and welcome to Character in Action, the official podcast for the 7 Degrees of Change Foundation. My name is Matthew J. Norcross, and I'll be your host as we have the privilege of talking with decision-makers from our community and beyond, who are living examples of character traits of the 7 Degrees of Change, which are empathy, respect, responsibility, fairness, trustworthiness, caring, and citizenship. These guests are willing to come in and explain how they live and show others by example to be a phoenix. These character traits serve as a basis of a book series I authored called, well, The Phoenix, as well as a correlating character education curriculum developed in association with High Point University. Today's guest is Dale Falwell, a member of the Council of State and Treasurer for the State of North Carolina known for such fiscal initiatives such as the Clear Pricing Plan. His previous role was NC Assistant Secretary of Employment Security, which he took on shortly after his departure from the North Carolina House of Representatives, where he served his district and as a Speaker Pro Tem. He started locally serving his community on the Forsyth County School Board and as a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Greensboro with a Master's in Accounting. And is a certified political accountant and an investment advisor. The honorable Dale Falwell joins us now via telephone from the state capitol. Dale, thank you for being on Character in Action. Before we get started, do you mind giving our listeners some background on your career as well as your family?
1: I'd be glad to. And I'm the currently the North State Treasurer of North Carolina considered the keeper of the public purse, and I'm the most unlikely person mm-hmm. to ever achieve that, given where I started in life. And uh, my background is that I was, uh, for most of my childhood, within a single-parent family, a poor in resource, but rich in opportunity, and thanks to the grace of God and uh, other adults who expected the best out of me, but wanted the best for me, uh, I am uh, where I am today. And uh, so I spent most of my life in the Winston-Salem area uh, and had an extensive blue-collar career as a paper boy and garbage collector and gas station attendant and motorcycle mechanic. And ultimately, at the age of 22, never thinking I'd ever go to college, I started taking classes at Winston-Salem State, which ultimately led to a graduation at UNC Greensboro.
0: UNC Greensboro. I've heard that's
1: an incredible school. UNC Greensboro is a place where, uh, there's a lot of people like me, commuting students, you know, right. in my case, working 60 hours a week, uh, taking 16 credit hours. Uh, you know, this whole student loan thing was not a big deal because we didn't have the capacity to take on loans or to pay them back. So I'm very grateful to all the professors at with the same state and UNC. Gee, who helped me through that process.
0: So, how do you define character? That's the first question I'm going to ask you.
1: Well, I I define it lots of different ways, but um, I, I just spoke to some high school students up at Watauga High School, and actually the North Carolina School for the Deaf down in Morganson, North Carolina, which was a... Very interesting presentation where everything I said was, uh, was signed and all the questions back to me were signed. What I talked to them about was three things integrity, ability, and passion. Three very
0: important, <laughs> three very and important details.
1: Are, <laughs> right. And there are people in that room, uh, who are world class at ability. They never study. They always make an A on the test this same presentation at, uh, at the Walker School of Business later that day. I... And passion, and a lot of people in our world that have passion. But if you don't have integrity, eventually those last two won't matter. And integrity is what you do when no one's watching. Uh, that's what integrity is. And if you're poor in resource and you think you're going to, quote, pull someone else off their ladder to climb yours, uh, they're going to squash you. They're going to fall on you. Generally speaking, anybody that you would ever try to pull off a ladder is going to be more connected or have more uh, power than you do, and therefore you'll never right. survive that. So always climb your own ladder. And when you're doing that, understand that you're going to make mistakes. I've been racing motorcycles 46 years. Never won a national or a, or a, or a, State, a cross-country motocross championship where I didn't fly out at least once in a turn or hit a tree or try to jump a creek. And the reason I'm telling that to your listeners simply because you are going to make mistakes. You're trying to ride fast enough to be more efficient and to do something better than anybody else from the whole world. Uh, when you make mistakes, you have a responsibility to close them, especially in this world. Uh, If you wait for the world to discover your mistake, probably won't survive that.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. So the second standard question is, do you mind telling us a story of witnessing either in person or in history, someone that was a true phoenix, someone that was a role model leading by example and making the world a better place? In
1: my life? Right. Well, there's been so many. Um, uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of so many people and I don't know the exact age of the people to be listening to this, but, uh, if they're high school students, I'm, you know, four, three or four times older than they are. And my message to them is that it doesn't matter how handsome they are, how pretty they are, how fortunate they were when they were born into this world or how smart they are or how rich they are. Eventually, when they get my age, you gotta look back and realizing and, and realize that they're standing on the shoulders of somebody. There's so many people in, in my life, I like that. And also in the other direction, uh, Colonel Cohn, my JRTC instructor, Paisley Middle School, gave me uh, my first pair of leather shoes. Who taught me how to shine shoes? Who taught me how to Ty, a uh, double Windsor that I use every day, and I think about him. Uh, Our principal, Melvin Gale, that's cool. When we had activity day, everybody was bringing basketballs and footballs and things, and I said, well, motorcycling is an activity. So he allowed me to type up some closure forms, and people were able to bring their dirt bike to school and ride them in the field.
0: Wow. I don't think (laughs) that could ever be allowed. That's awesome
1: hey, I wonder if that could happen to any of our good charter school that Paul run that, uh, interesting and, and and there's so many people but you know the main message to your question is that uh, I'm learning even today I know what I don't know I try to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am but what these people taught me is that if you're if you're poor in resource and rich in opportunity, You have to always be known, always, always, always be known as the person who raises their hand and volunteers for the toughest job.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So the third and final standard question I want to ask you is, if you could please share a moment that stands out in your mind, is there something big or even the slightest gesture that was a transformative Phoenix moment? one where you know you had a significant impact on an individual's life or on a group of people?
1: Well, I have these every day as the keeper of the public purse, uh, and my job here is to advocate for the invisible. Uh, there's nearly a million people on this pension plan who protect and otherwise serve. Uh, they don't know who the treasurer is or that I am the treasurer, uh, but that's not what's important. What's important is that I know who they are. So... I have an opportunity every day to advocate for the invisible um, because, you know, the underdog always needs someone to advocate for them. I've had some very sad moments in my life that were transformative um, and some that I look back on and, and realize now um, what was happening in the moment. For example, I believe I was in 11th grade. And it was the beginning of school year, and I went up to the guidance counselor's office and inquired about taking an AP class. And uh, this may mean something to some of your uh, to some of your listeners because not everybody's heard of this. But the person went back and got my file, came back in, and basically said, "Looking at your grade, we think you'd be better suited to apply for a job bagging groceries at the A and P grocery store." Not taking an AP class,
0: A and P. Uh, so yes. that's um. I had no idea they had stores in North Carolina. I've heard of them before, but
1: yeah, I grew up with A and P stores in North Carolina, Atlantic and Pacific. My point of saying to you is that I went into choir about bettering myself and and stretching, and then I was I was met with that uh, discouragement. I think we all, all have the really all the inequality going on in our life right now. You know, the the oppression of low expectations is something that's very serious.
0: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And that leads me to um, the very first question that I'm going to ask you, and that is about respect. <laughs> Political discourse has sadly become quite toxic with a huge lack of respect for others' beliefs and opinions. With your decades of experience in public service and the political arena, how have you seen it fall and how do you think if we can get it back?
1: Well, it it's very discouraging and as I say, uh the right and the left wing are connect same bird. They just fly around all, together all the time. And, you know, during most of my life we heard of this thing called the military-industrial complex. We now have the RAGE industrial complex, R-A-G-E, where people are making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars on keeping us separated. You know, in some respect, uh, this has created an opportunity for me because my reputation is for attacking problems and not attacking people. Right. And so, while there been so much RAGE uh, out there, uh, people, at the end of the day, Matt, just want somebody who talk to them like an adult, and what they hear makes common sense. Now, very often when you manage one of the largest pools of public money in the world, which we do here at the treasurer's office, we have to use the word no. But we always try to spell it K-N-O-W. If we say no to something, we always try to explain why. And normally, always actually, those explanations are not emotional. They're not political, but they're mathematical.
0: No, Ken A.O.W., very important word to know these days, right?
1: hmm that's right.
0: Yeah. So let's move on to um, responsibility. You're responsible for the more than $122 billion in state pension funds that provide retirement benefits for more than 950,000 teachers, law enforcement officers, and other public workers. Under your leadership, the pension plan is rated among the top five highest funded in the country and one accolades for proactive management and funding discipline. How do you manage such a huge level of responsibility? Uh,
1: it's like an eight eating ham biscuit. It's sort of one bite at a time. Uh, we have, we have created a culture here at the treasurer's office of, of common sense and conservatism. Now, when I use the word conservative or liberal, it sort of splits the audience. Right. But unfortunately, we, we, we've lost meaning of these words. The root word of conservative, the root word of conservative is to conserve. It's the reason why I carry the plastic bottle around with me and I fill it up three times a day, because I hate wasting plastic. The root word of liberal is to liberate, to set economically free. And especially if you're a lower income individual, until you learn how to conserve right. in your everyday life. You can never be liberated. And that may be going to Zaxby's, and at the bottom of that receipt, it has a buy one, snack pack, get one free coupon. for example, which is worth $8.11. It may be turning your spigot off when you brush your teeth. It may be in some situations, like I was in, taking a military shower where you turn the water off while you're you know, doing everything else that you do. It could be turning your hot water heater down if you're going to be away from the house for an extended period of time or planning your trip. Right. So my point of saying that to you is that um, the way that I approach what we and by the way, the amount of money you just mentioned in and of itself is the 27th largest pool of public money in the world. And you're not going to believe this, it's only half of what we do. Oh my we god, manage, we, ne- we manage nearly a quarter of a trillion dollars, and that's nearly 10 times the size of the state budget in North Carolina. Mm-hmm-hmm.
0: Nuts, so. Let's move on to fairness. In 2014, when you assumed the role of assistant secretary of the Employment Security Commission, and at that time previous administrations had racked up 2.8 billion dollars in employment insurance debt and paid close to a quarter of a billion in interest payments with no end in sight and apparently no concern for the catastrophic situation. In the legislative reforms you created, pushed through and implemented maximum benefits and the number of weeks that jobless workers could collect benefits were cut. You had professional interviews where professionals admitted that they didn't need to work because they weren't making as much sitting at home doing nothing. How, how do you well, assume a, that would be fair?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, when I assumed it was in March 13th of 2013, And I inherited the most broken, broken system in the United States. Broke means we owe $2.8 billion to the federal government. Broken means that our quality scores uh, were even behind Guam and Puerto Rico. We had the worst quality scores of the United States. And I know I may not get invited back when I say this, but we suck. (laughs) And, you know, and there's no other word for it. Our ability to get money to people who deserved it, we weren't good at that. And our, some, many times our ability to pay people didn't deserve it. Uh, we were sucked at that also. So with this legislation, I was not in the legislature, but the legislature, legislation that was written, uh, giving me the tools, but the untold story of this, because the, what happened was we paid off 2.7 billion in unemployment debt and built a $1 billion surplus in 30 months. The untold story of this, Matt, is that we listened to the state employees who worked in that building, who had great ideas of how to get better at giving, getting the money to the people who deserved it and keeping it from those who didn't. So it was we have phenomenal story after story of people in our own building who came up with ideas on how we became more efficient. Our quality scores catapulted. We had the biggest increase in quality scores in the United States, the number one increase after two years of, uh, in that role. But it was mainly built on listening to the state employees who had these great ideas. We found a person in our building that was drawing unemployment while they were working for us at the unemployment agency. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know that doesn't bring a lot of confidence to your listeners, uh, but the fact is, is that uh, what we try to do is push the power down to our employees and listen to our customers. Why should your listeners care about this? Because hopefully they don't wake up thinking about CUDA, which is state unemployment, FUDA, federal unemployment tax, except for the fact that since 11, when our plan had run deficit and we were borrowing money here and there from the federal government, our employers across North Carolina, including charter schools and others were paying a payroll tax surcharge as long as that debt was outstanding. So as soon as that debt was outstanding, uh, was paid off, that surcharge went away. Uh, and on top of that, things I need to make sure I point out that $1 billion surplus on St. Patrick's Day of 2020. That was a $4 billion surplus, which was desperately needed as we had nearly a million people unemployed. So we are one of the few states that did not have to go back and borrow more money from the federal government. Second thing I want to tell you about all that is that uh, the legislation that was passed was also wired so that when the unemployment rate went down, the number of weeks went down. But when the unemployment rate went up, that means it's harder to find a job, the unemployment week went up. So there was a lot of compassion in that legislation that, um, sometimes people don't, don't realize. But the bottom line is this. Economically, you cannot have any system that pays people more per hour not to work than to work.
0: Agree wholeheartedly. So let's move on to trustworthiness. You were quoted earlier this year saying that. Several smaller municipalities do not have the resources needed to enforce trustworthy audits. Can you please share with us your thoughts on personal and institutional trustworthiness?
1: Well, it goes back to ethics ethics and integrity, and, you know, it's what you do when no one's watching. So um, we have a lot of smaller... That, you know, as you can read in the paper or by Google, Google searching my name, Dale Falwell, uh, can find uh, a town like Spring Lake where we had the finance officer embezzle $550,000 Spring Lake. Mm-hmm. You know, 150000 of that went to a nursing home that had her mother's name on the memo line. So this is a check written off a nursing home, off the, off the city bank account of Spring Lake to a nursing home with her mother's name on the memo line. So, you know, the trustworthiness goes back to integrity and it's what you do when no one's watching and when you make a mistake, you disclose it. And that's the kind of culture we try to build the treasurer's office and we try to communicate that culture to all the municipalities and counties and, and other entities that we have responsibility for through our local government committee.
0: Very good. So let's move on to caring. You've been a tireless tireless champion for streamlining the organ donation process in the state. In my family, we have a donor and a recipient, so I have seen the impact firsthand. This certainly qualifies under the category. Can you tell us your story of why you're so passionate about this?
1: Yes. uh, Our life was turned upside down in May of 1999 when our a uh, 7 year old son was boarding a school bus in front of our house and uh, was knocked 38 feet out of his chute uh, by a person who did not know what a stop arm with. And um, Dalton, as he was in life and death, was a complete organ donor. But it's only when a close motorcycle racing friend of mine who was an adult died at the age of 45. His name was Tim Dillon. Any Carolina fans that are out there will recognize his father as Hook Dillon, who played for Carolina. And Tim died, uh, and he had a heart on his driver's license. And only then, knowing my story with Dalton, who obviously did not have a driver's license, Tim, that I realized that there's nearly 3 million people in North Carolina who had a heart on their driver's license, but it meant nothing. It meant nothing to a trauma surgeon. It meant nothing to a law enforcement officer. It meant nothing to a first responder. So what I did is I wrote the legislation called The Heart Prevailed. I'm a big country music fan, so I try to get fancy titles because I was in the minority party (laughs) when I was doing this. I wasn't in the majority. So I was able to write and author and pass 21 major pieces of legislation sitting on the back row through Speaker Black, or Hackney, President Pro Tem Bath Knight, signed by governor, easily, and or So the heart prevails the year after it was in in effect. Uh, It codified the heart on the driver's license as a directive of the decedent. It does not mean that we violate DNR, do not resuscitate. It just allows first responders to oxygenate an organ immediately. You don't plant an organ. You just oxygenate it to keep it fresh so that when that person does arrive at the hospital, the organ transplant matching process can take place. I'm very pleased to report, and thank you for reminding me of this important legislation. place, that the organ transplant increased 58% in the first year of it.
0: Yeah, quite an amazing story. And it, it definitely hit straight home for me because there were members of my There was a member of my family that um, had to get, there were members of my family that had to do recent kidney, recent organ donations, so that, that really did hit home. Let's move on to citizenship. School board member, House of Representatives, Speaker Pro Tem, Assistant Secretary of Commerce, State Treasurer, your career has personified good citizenship. Tell me more about your thoughts on being a
1: good citizen. I think everybody has the responsibility to give back, and some can give back more in different ways than others. I also think, in case we run out of time, that every one of your listeners, especially the the young listeners, need to understand what Oprah Winfrey said to Johnny Depp about 30 years ago when Johnny Depp told Oprah Winfrey that he went to Los Angeles to play music. And while he was playing music, he met this actor by the name of Nicholas Cage. And Nicholas Cage invited him to act. And Oprah Winfrey looks at Johnny Depp and says the following. Does it scare you that something that you're so great at never crossed your mind? And that's what I want your young listeners to focus on. What in their life, what did God possibly make them better at than anyone else in the whole world that never crossed their mind? that they might be better than anyone else in the world not better than but better at something so uh i'm a motorcycle mechanic and a garbage collector so i'm a blue collar person who likes fixing things and there's a lot to be fixed in government and that's why i've gravitated you know towards the jobs that i've had all right so that actually leads me to the last question
0: i'm going to ask you and it's about empathy you weren't born of privilege with cushy opportunities thrown at your feet. You've earned every position you've ever held, which brings a certain perspective to being in roles of great responsibility. The old adage of walking a mile in another man's shoes. How important is it to you to have empathy as a leader?
1: Well, it's very important. I'm currently fighting the healthcare cartel. These are all the major hospitals in North Carolina who are hell-bent on consolidating more power so that they can uh, put profits over patients. Mm -hmm. And I'm currently currently in medical debt collection on purpose. I could pay the debt that I have for the medical procedure that I got, which was an MRI that cost $6,000. I was there for eight minutes. But I purposely only put $500 down as the copay because I wanted to put be put in medical debt collection because I wanted to stand and walk in the shoes of the very people that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. The second, the second thing I'd want to say about um, you know empathy is that, and I have experienced all these through my life. There have been great, great periods in my life where I didn't know better. That could be about where my hands were supposed to be. That could be about where the fork and the knives were. Uh, that could be about what, uh, upper getting, uh, a degree could mean to me in, in my life. Right. I just, didn't, I simply didn't know better. I didn't know better than, the, I didn't push back on that guidance counselor who said, we think it'd be better suiting bagging groceries than applying for an AP course. But then there's people who just don't know better and we need to have the highest levels of empathy for them. Right. And then, and then there's the people that do know better. And then there's the people that should have known better. I have absolutely no tolerance for people who are should know better uh, because that comes back to integrity. And when you do know better and should know better and you still do the wrong thing, uh, I don't have much tolerance for that. But we need to have the highest levels of empathy for those that, that don't know better. And I was one of those for most of my life. And on some topics, I'm still one of those people.
0: I think I think we've all been at that point in our lives, don't you think?
1: Well, I do, and it goes back to my public position right now is that, especially for the young listeners, uh, there's a difference between a politician and a public servant. A politician, if you look at what the Greek Latin roots of those words mean, or is someone who is taking. In order to enrich themselves. Uh, they achieve all their public service goals the night they get elected. They just want to get elected. That's all they want to do. A public servant there to enrich the people that they're there to serve. And any of your, especially your young listeners, I hope they'll consider going into public service. There's a very high-paying job in state and local government right now. Um, and I hope that when they do that, they'll they'll think about, you know, what they can do to enrich others. Because at the end of the day, no matter how old we are, as long as you have somebody to love and something to do and something to look forward to, you'll be complete in God's eyes.
0: Please share with us some thoughts on how we can bring character back into our culture and in our politics.
1: We need leaders. We'll lean in the other direction and prove that there's a a better, more efficient, profitable way to do that. And in the last two elections, I've been outspent five to one, five to one. And even with my name being at the bottom of the ballot, T for treasurer, I've received more vote than anyone who's ever run for president of the United States. So I'm trying to set an example that you can be outspent five to one and still... Still win an election and even get more votes than anybody who's ever run for president of the United States in North Carolina.
0: Dale, thank you for joining us. It was an R and a privilege to be able to speak with you today.
1: Well, we'll do this again and maybe next time we can get some guests on here to ask me some questions and, and tell me how they think about these things.
0: All right. Thanks a lot. To learn more about our foundation and both the Phoenix Children's Book Series and curriculum, visit our website at 7DegreesOfChange.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Matthew J. Norcross, and always remember, everyone can be a Phoenix.